We're kicking off summer here at Crossbridge, and when we kick off summer, we usually like to do summer series, and we do series that could be movies, or could be music, or could be, um, usually we keep them pretty light because we know that so many people are in and out with vacations and all sorts of things, but we're trying something a little different this summer, and while they'll all still be a little bit different so you won't miss too much if you're away, it is going to be one big idea that we're going through with a new series this summer called One Size Fits None. That's a little different than what you're used to reading on things, isn't it? Um, you know, normally we have this idea of buying things that say one size fits all. Now, this might make sense if you're um, going to buy something like a scarf or you're going to buy a poncho. A poncho is great for one size fits all, right? This should be pretty easy. Um, have you ever bought a one size fits all item and realized you were not part of the all? Okay, good. I'm, I'm guessing by your giggle there, you understand, right? Um, this has happened to me. I remember when I was in my 20s, I was on my way to a Yankee game with one of my friends, and uh, I always got, like, the same Yankee hat all the time. I loved that I knew her. And he's like, no, nah, I got a better vendor. I got a great guy. And I was like, okay, great. So we went to that guy, and I was all excited. I looked at all the hats I wanted, and, of course, I found one that was a one-size-fits-all hat, and I thought, here we go. And this is not the hat, but I remember buying it, and I was like, great. And um, I'm fiddling with it after I pay for it. We're walking towards the game, and I begin to adjust and adjust and adjust and no matter how much I adjusted it it did not fit my head it would not fit my head I mean I had it on its smallest setting and this thing was so loose on my head that I realized one size does not fit all my head size and now you're staring at my head I see you um, my head size is not an all normal people head size. I mean, it was so loose that I swore if, I, if, if someone like sneezed in my direction, the hat was going to be like, Phew. and that, at that point, I began to realize my all really means I have a youth size noggin. I have this tiny little head. And, uh, and, and, and I was like, this is weird. What I find interesting, though, is this idea where even if they say one size fits most so they don't get sued anymore, we don't just apply this to the clothes that we wear. We apply this to all other areas of our life and in our world. Sometimes we don't even realize it. I see this play out when it comes to politics that we think that if we can get our party's president, or if we can get that one Supreme Court justice in, that everything will be better. One problem or one solution can fix all the problems that we have. It's not that simple, is it? Right? We do this with finances. This is the way that I've made a ton of money, so if you do all those things, of course you'll make money. But it may not work that way. Or we do this in sports, trust the process. Well, what if your process is wrong? You don't end up in the finals, trust the process. Well. Everybody says that now. Does it work? No. We have all of these areas. One of the areas that we apply it to that I felt most acutely when I was growing up was into our education. As I was growing up, we had a one-size-fits-all approach to education, and I will be the first to admit, and this is no surprise to any of you, that I was not a great student in uh, elementary school, middle school, high school. I'm, I'm just, I had so much trouble learning in school. This is for a lot of different reasons that I discovered later um, in my 30s. But while I was in school, the, the struggle that I had was I, I just could not, I couldn't focus. And I remember 
educators and my parents, same advice. Just work harder. Apply yourself a little more. You know, if, if you do your homework before you go outside, it'll just be done and, and it'll be fine. Or if, if you actually studied before a test, you would pass it. You know the info. And it was always if I did more of something that I already struggled with doing, I would get better at it. It was working, though, for all of the people who were next to me in class, and they seemed to do fine. And so I realized one size of education did not fit me. I was not part of the all, and so I had to learn something new. I had to learn a new way to, to learn. And so I began to do something that really helped me, is I have journals or I have notebooks, and I would write, and I still doodle in the side of notebooks, and I draw pictures while people are talking. And I remember my teachers yelling at me like, you need to pay attention. What they failed to realize was I was paying attention. That was the way I learned to pay attention. But because it didn't match the all, they looked at me and said, that's wrong. And I'm like, but my grades are going up. Isn't that the goal of what you're trying to accomplish here? Get me to next year so you don't have to deal with me. I'm doing it. But I wasn't doing it the size that fit everybody. And it left me always feeling like I needed to work harder in something that I wasn't wired to do, and it just started to wreck me. And to this day, in meetings that I sit at, I have a, an eight-hour meeting that I will be going to tomorrow. I have a fresh notebook ready with the agenda already written out on it so that I could doodle like crazy because it will help me pay attention and tell the story back of what we talked about. But the area that I see this that hurts me the most is when it's applied to the church. And let me tell you, one size fits all is applied to the church all the time. If you have not been part of a church before, um, this may come as a surprise to you, but Christians, most Christians, can be pretty judgmental towards each other and are universally pretty bad at giving on advice to each other on how to connect to God. If you're frustrated or offended by that, I'm okay with that. Because maybe, like me, you have struggled in your relationship with God, connecting with Him, and you feel like there's, there's those seasons that you're not on the same page and, and, and you're just not doing it right or something's wrong and then you ask someone for help and they give you a one-size-fits-all solution maybe like education here's the christian education that we give is you know i'm struggling what should i do and we hear over and over just read more and pray more just just read more and pray more how many have ever heard that when you've wrestled with your faith Okay, great, many of us here. If you read more and you pray more, you will connect with God more. You will get something out of that. If they want to get out of the box, maybe they'll say, well, put some worship music on while you do it, right? We can allow music in there a little bit today. We rarely ask each other about, hey, what's your pattern of connecting with God look like right now? What do you do to normally connect with God? Right? We, we just simply go to the simple fix that we think applies to everybody. If you spend more time doing something, then that's how you'll connect with God. More time doing it, even if you don't connect, just, just do it more. As I received that growing up, I, if I struggled in school staying still, the idea of someone saying to me, you know what, you're not reading enough. Go spend an hour alone with God. Nope. No way. 
no way. There was no Bible on Audible book at that point unless I wanted to put it on my cool disc man while I did something. You know, and like, there, you're just going to get the skips. There's no way if someone said, you need to pray more, like a half hour or an hour a day. Oh, good, yeah, you expect me to stay still that long and focus on something. No way, that's happening. It's just, my wife's grinning. She knows this is still somewhat true. Um, This is hard, right? This is not that easy. Yes, I believe that spending time with God in prayer and spending time with God in the Word are crucial, but this cannot be the one-size-fits-all answer that we give each other about connecting with our Creator. And, And we do this all the time, and I really do believe that our hearts are in the right place. We are trying to care for the people around us, but the problem that that exists underneath this is that we assume that our way of how we connect with God is the way that all people should connect to God. And so we've applied what works for us is this should work for you then. Because it works for me, it should work for you, and if it doesn't work for you, just do it more, and you'll find that connection. We're just too different for that, aren't we? We're not wired for this. And we instead want to give each other just a simple formula instead of taking the time to get to know each other well enough to say, God has wired you different than he's wired me. When this happens, and we just apply a one-size-fits-all approach to our spirituality, that one size will fit none. And our faith, I guarantee you, our faith becomes stale, it becomes lifeless, And when it's in that place and we see other people and their faith is vibrant and exciting and they find joy, we begin to resent them. We begin to get frustrated at them thinking, oh, well, if their life was as hard as mine and yet it is. But they have joy and we get frustrated because we're not experiencing anything. It's just become bland. I want to tell you, this is the last thing I want to see for us as a church. This is the last thing I want to see for you, experience myself. And that's the reason that we're doing this whole series that we're going to go through. And my hope is over the next couple of weeks that we gather together, that you're going to discover, as we unpack this together, new ways to connect with God that you may have never explored before. New ways to connect with him um, so that, that you can dive deep with him, experience his love, share that with others. And if you are a reader... Um, and you're like, oh, I, like you got your summer books ready. I'm going to give you two suggestions really quick that you may want to take with you to the beach or the, to the pool that you can try to get in between yelling at kids or, you know, defending your beach chair. And the first would be um, this, and this is what this whole series is rooted in. It's a book called Invitation to a Journey, and uh, the cover now is very different. This is from like 20 years ago and beaten up. It's my great copy, but this is one of my favorite books ever by Robert Mulholland on what spiritual formation is, and we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But this book, I would highly suggest. I think it's amazing. The other book that uh, I go to that I love is a book called Sacred Pathways. Okay, Sacred Pathways. This is by Gary Thomas. Uh, When this book came out over 20 years ago, I I absolutely fell in love with it because I found um, a unique wiring for me of like, man, it validated how I need to worship God when I'm really struggling and connect with him. And uh, everything that we go through for the next couple of weeks, it's going to be rooted in this book. So all the ideas that we're saying, hey, you can connect to God this way, it's going to come out of here, obviously rooted in scripture, but this way, if you're like, wait, I want to dive deeper. I want to know more about that specific area. Um, Gary will walk you through way better than I can, okay? Way better than I can. So I would highly suggest putting that on your 
uh, on your reading list, and I hope that you're as excited about this as I am. I really hope that you find grace in this, that you find hope in it. And as we go through this, there will be some weeks you're going to be pumped knowing, that's me, that's me. And the person next to you is going to be like, who connects to God that way? Like, that's ridiculous. And yet there's going to be weeks that you're going to think, this is a waste of my time. Who connects with God like that? That's ridiculous. And the person next to you is going to be so excited thinking, that's me. On those weeks where you're frustrated, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to lean into that message and pay attention more than the one you want to hear. And here's why. The person next to you is going to need your voice when they're struggling to remind them of how they can find their place with God again. We understand these things not so that we are better, but so that we can help those and love those around us. Does that make sense? All right. I do have a feeling as we look at some of these, you're going to go, wait a minute. I, I didn't think that was me. I actually really like this. And you're going to discover new ways to love God, which are going to be amazing. But this really is um, simply, it's all part of our spiritual formation. How many of you have ever heard that word before, spiritual formation, that phrase? Okay, sometimes we use it up here at Crossbridge. Um, It's a great, uh, great phrase that simply, uh, instead of me defining it for you, let me just tell you, this is how Robert Mulholland defines it, and I think it's great. He says, the definition of spiritual formation is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. The process of being conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. And the reason I like this definition so much is because it it helps us understand this is a process. We at Crossbridge say we hope that you take one step forward in your faith. We are never expecting people to be fully formed in their uh, Christ-likeness while we are together. This will happen a day after death. We've got a life to live, so let's just do this at a step at a time. It's a process and have some grace with each other. Amen? This is a process. It does not happen overnight. I love that it's about being conformed to the image of Christ, right? This is our goal. This means that there are all sorts of areas of our life where we can look and be conformed to look like Christ. That that there's areas that as we address some things and we're being shaped to look like him, right when we get that area together, guess what? There's another area of our life in this process to go, well, now I can think about this area. And God in his grace doesn't say, here's everything that doesn't line up with Christ. Right now, work on it and get it done. No, no, no. He takes us step by step, but we are being conformed to his image because we all fall short. And the last part of the definition is for the sake of others. And, and the, the reason I love this part of this definition for the sake of others is it's so often we talk about following Jesus makes your life better. It, it makes it better for you. You become this, you become that. When the real, I don't know, heart of following Jesus and his teachings is not about you getting better. It's not about me being the best me. It's about me being conformed to Christ for your sake. It's about you being conformed to Christ for my sake. It's about us looking like Jesus so that we can invite others around us to follow Jesus. And in turn, their lives influence the people around them. Our spiritual journeys should not have us at the center of it. It should not have our joy, our goal, our betterment. It should have Christ at the center and others are the focus. Are you with me? We need to be others focused in our faith. That's why we do this. And this is going to, as we become like Christ, change who we are. And so if it changes who we are, That means we really got to figure this out. Spiritual formation can't be rushed. 
And when people are saying, Jimmy, can you help me grow to look like Christ? Can you help me figure out how to connect with God better? I, I just don't know what to do. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach of you want to connect with God, just read and pray more. Put some music on in the background. You'll be fine. The task that we all have if we're going to love people is to get to know people, to understand people, to see who they are and how they are wired because you can't direct them until you know them. But the first step in helping someone is usually helping them get to know who they are. I don't think most of us know who we are. In 500 CE, I love that um, St. Augustine, he wrote in Confessions. I don't know if you've ever read it, it's fantastic. But this is what he writes. He says, how can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? And then he prays this just a a little bit later in in Confessions. He says, grant, Lord, that I might know myself, that I may know thee. Another author I read says, he he rephrases it, Lord, help me know myself better that I might know you better. This is a prayer I pray all the time. Some of you get exhausted by the introspection of my brain, trying to figure out why I do what I do, but I want to know everything about me so that I can understand how creative, unique, amazing, diverse God is that I'm always learning about myself and it doesn't make me uh, hate myself. It actually, I enjoy the parts of me that look different so I can celebrate God. This all, I'm asking God to gently show me the real me that he's created. And the reason I, I want to know the real me that he's created is it all goes back to Genesis chapter one in the passage that Dylan had read for us to start. And Dylan, thank you so much for reading scripture over us today. After spending six days of creating all the cosmos, God comes together and and he says, after everything that's in this, in verse 26, it says, then God said, let us make human beings in our own image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on earth, and the small animals that scurry on the ground. So God has created us to rule over all things, right? And in verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. Have you ever thought about this, like sat and just pondered this idea that that God, the author of Genesis, says that God has created all of human beings to look like him. We all reflect the image of God. You, right now, and me, are image bearers of God. You look like God. You are not God but you look like God. This means that there is something in every man, every woman, every child that looks like and reflects who God is. This means that men and women have to be created differently. Don't they? This means that God isn't a one-size-fits-all. I look one way and that's it. No, no, no. There's attributes of God that are very masculine and attributes of God that are very feminine. Otherwise, we couldn't be created in his his image. And it says that he created male and female in his image. We're different, aren't we? We just are. And we need each other to understand God. And, And come on, we have different colored skin. We have different physical attributes. Our hair texture is different. Our body builds are different aren't they? It's not racist to look around and go like, oh, or sexist to look around and say, we're different. No, we are different. We are so different. I think this is a great thing because collectively God needed 
all these shapes, all these sizes, all these colors, all these textures, all these tones to help collectively describe how big, creative, diverse, and amazing he is. He needed all of this, all of creation, all of humanity to look so different to help us get a picture of how amazing he is. Because the moment we think that God looks just like me, we are in deep trouble because we have missed it. God is not just like us. We reflect him, but he does not look like us. Some people, you're introverts. You're kind of freaking out that I even said that. You're like, don't point me out, please. Some of you are extroverts. You're like, I love this. Like, let's go. Are we talking about that after this? Some people, you, you get into competition over anything. Other people, you could care less, so you just set people up to win because it makes them feel better, and you don't even care. So different. These things are really good. They're all rooted in the image of God that he's given us these attributes, these, these physical things, these uh, mental things, these emotional things to point back to him. They are beautiful. We should be excited about these differences, right? We should be so excited about this. But that's not what we do as humans, is it? I think it's because of sin. Two chapters after God creates everything, Adam and Eve sin. And, and sin, when I say sin, I, I simply mean anything that we think, we say, we do that displeases God, right? Anything that's not, um, uh, you know, that, that keeps us from loving God or loving people like Jesus loved people. This is what sin is. And because of sin, Adam and Eve, they hide themselves in the bushes. They're no longer comfortable with who God has created them to be. And so shame makes them cover themselves and try to be something different. And then blame becomes part of their nature where they point out all the things in someone else that are wrong. Yeah, yeah, this isn't my problem. She made me do it. The serpent made me do it. God, this is your fault. You gave me her. You know, like there's so many issues that we could say the issue couldn't be mine. It has to be yours. And so sin divides us. And the pattern of blaming, shaming, lying, dividing it gets passed down from generation to generation after Adam and Eve, and you see that the world becomes one of the most diverse and yet divided places. It did not take long for sexism and racism to set in, to shame and to start to enslave the very attributes. We pointed out the very things that God created us in his image, and we said those things that should be elevated, and wow, look at you. Instead, your skin color sets you apart from me, and different, and so I can't be wrong, you must be wrong, so you will work for me. And slavery, racism, sexism has dominated our world because of sin, because we have taken the things that God has given us as gifts, and we have used them to divide and set us apart from each other. Do you see the problem with this? We're robbing ourselves from understanding who God really is because we've separated ourselves from each other. I'll be honest, I don't think much has changed today. I think we are more judgmental than ever, even in a culture that's trying to be so understanding, so accepting of all things, as long as it's the thing that I want you to accept. That's not accepting. That's, that's, that's crap. That's not real. You can't say, I want you to accept all things, except what, it, it's just got to agree with me. That's not acceptance. That's the very thing that everyone's hating I wonder if like Adam and Eve, it's so much easier for us to point fingers, to deflect attention away from us to how everyone else is wrong. And, and I wonder if it's because, and hear me on this, I don't know if we know who we really are. 
I don't know if we really know who God created us to be. And so we spend so much of our life hiding and covering ourselves like Adam and Eve, blaming everybody else because we're terrified that if we really knew who we are, we wouldn't like ourselves. And we completely forget this promise from Genesis that God says, I created you in my image. And, and the beauty of Christ and following Christ is I'm going to bring you back to that image, but you're going to have to work with me on this and I'm going to shape you. I'm going to do this. And we're going to have to wrestle with God. We're going to have to wrestle with that very question. And that's the statement from St. Augustine where he said, how can you grow, clo clo grow close to God when you are so far from yourself? And be constantly praying, Lord, grant me that I may know myself, that I may know thee. If we can't get to know us, we are going to miss out on God because God has made you to reflect him, regardless of your color, regardless of your gender. You have been created in the image of God, and he created you that way in your mother's womb as he knit you together. You are intentionally made and look like God. And when you start to believe that you need to be someone different, whenever that began in your life, when you thought, whatever God's created, I need to do something else to please the people around me, this is one you began to cut yourself off from God. This is when we began to look for the praise of other people instead of the praise of our creator. And it might sound crazy, but you are going to have to learn to embrace that you are different than the people around you. This doesn't make you better than them. It doesn't make them better than you. It just makes you, you. Can we agree today? We're all different. All right, great. Just, just turn to the person next to you and remind them right now. We're all different, and if you're not next to anybody because you're that introvert, you, could, you don't have to say anything. Right? God created us different. You're different. You are so different. Amen. I'm glad you're different. I'm glad you're different. And can I tell you what makes this even, like, weirder is not only are we all different, we're all changing all the time. So the moment you think you know yourself, you've changed. Any old folks want to give me an amen here? Come on. Man, if St. Augustine is praying this, Lord, help me know myself that I may know you. I'm like, when will I ever know me? I've been doing this for 20 years, asking this question, praying this prayer. I've been walking through this so long. I take all sorts of spiritual, like, assessment, or not spiritual assessment tools. I love those personality tests. I love those, you know, gift tests. And, and I, I take all of those things because I want to get to know myself better. And I, I, as I was doing my research and writing all of this stuff up, I, I told you my book is an old book, and I ran into a test. I kept the results from that time, and I wrote them in my book, and I was like, oh, I wonder what 23-year-old Jimmy looked like versus 43-year-old Jimmy. Have I changed at all? Yes, a lot. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Myers-Briggs test? Okay, so um, if you're younger than 30, this is the, uh, like, the late 90s, early 2000 version of like a BuzzFeed, which Disney princess are you? A quiz, okay? <laughs> so you take the quiz and then it tells you where you are. And what they did is they, they take your personality and they break it up into like 16 different categories and, or eight different categories. And then you take it to figure out whether you're like an introvert or you're an extrovert. And they have a different letter attached to it. And um, I, I was like, oh, I found my answers in the test. And I was like, Okay, then when you're done with it, they give you four letters that you're pretty much never going to remember. 
um, never going to remember. And, and here's the, like, all 16 different opportunities or different categories you could be. And I was like, oh, that's cool. You pretty much only remember the I or the E. And you're like, am I introverted, extroverted after that? It's like, I don't, I don't remember much of this. But as I was preparing, I found from when I was 23. When I was 23, I was an ESTJ. That's who I was. And I was like, oh, this is cool. But being the curious guy I am, I sat, I retook this at 43, and at 43, I had shifted to then an ENFP. And I thought, wait a second, 20 years? Every one of my letters changed except for extroverted? Like, am I a completely different person than I was? And even the percentage of my extroversion went from like 105% at 23 that's really what it was to it, it was way lower now and i was like oh my gosh do you know what happened in 20 years i changed i changed you can ask my wife i am a different husband than she married i'm not the same person i husband different i father different i pastor different i think different i connect to god different and if i held a one-size-fits-all mentality in my spiritual life i would be so drained right now because what fueled me and fueled my soul to love god to receive his love when i was 23 is not what fuels me at 43 it would not fuel me right now and, and where i am right now and what fuels me now guess what it may not fuel me in 10 years because i'm going to change just like you are that's why i, I love what gary thomas says in sacred pathways he says that the goal here is not self-actualization or spiritual absorption, but to feed our souls so that we can know God in a new way, to love him with every cell of our being, and then express that love by reaching out to others. Express the love by reaching out to others. The goal is not to become your best self. Our best self without Christ is still the worst. Our best self is us being conformed to the image of Christ and asking the Holy Spirit to help shape us into, him, into his image. Why? For the sake of the people around us. It helps us to reach out and love the people who are around us. This is about knowing God and discovering him in new ways and expressing it to others. So when you are struggling in your life, where do you go when you need to hear from God? What is it that, that, that you find yourself doing to connect with him? Where you feel like, I can hear his voice in this. I feel his love. Or when I'm doing this, I know that God is with me. Where do you go? I know that every one of our answers are different to this. They have to be because we're created differently. For some of you, you want to go outside. You want to take your bike and go ride paths out in the woods. Some of you want to, I, I, I like to walk train tracks for some reason. I just love it. Um, I don't know why. I, some of you want to be around a stream. Some of you want to be away from all sorts of nature. Put me in the quietest room with no one around me so that I hear nothing, see nothing, and I can just sit in silence. I want to be there. Some of you want to turn uh, worship music all the way up and just go crazy like that and just like dance around and you need that rejuvenation. Some of you are tired of all of those things immediately and you're like, give me a book that I can lock in and, and challenge my brain and my thinking. This is what I do to reset. We all are wired different. Well, what do you do? Where do you go? Because we all have to know what it is and where it is that we go to connect with God. 
Jesus had a place. Did you know that? Jesus had a place he routinely visited. And as you read his biographies, and, and as we do that over the summer, you'll see this, that he has a place he regularly goes to. You see a pattern. And when Dr. Luke writes about Jesus in his biography, um, he carries some amazing details about Jesus's life. And one of the details is found in chapter 21 that Dylan read. It said that every day in, in verse 37, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach. And then check this out. And each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives. This is Gethsemane, okay? The crowds gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. So he would be there in the morning, and in the evenings he always retreated back to the garden. He went there because you can't really unpack life and what just happened on the last week of your life in this passion week of Jesus's life. He, he's in the temple, and it's hard to like be with God while you're in the middle of doing all the things. So he, he finds this night in the Garden of Gethsemane every night to go there. And during the most intense week of his life, every night, he finds himself in this garden. In chapter 22, right after celebrating the Passover dinner and washing his disciples' feet, including Judas, who had left halfway through dinner, right? Dr. Luke, he tells us again in the next chapter of 22, he says, then accompanied by his disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went, what's those two words? Ah, he went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not be given into temptation. Do you see what, what Dr. Luke says here? As usual, uh, he had a routine built into his life. This was Jesus' routine. When his soul was crushed to the point of death, where did he go? He went to Gethsemane. In Gethsemane, that's where he needed community and invited his best friends. I need you to pray for me. Life is hard right now. In Gethsemane, this is where he wrestles with God about, is this really what you want me to do? Is this really the mission you have for me? Is there any other way to do this? But he has a place that he knows his friends are close. I, I'm going to go on a little further, guys. You keep praying for me, but I'm going to pray here. And so he's got his friends, and yet he's got his alone time with God that he knows, and he's surrounded by these old, ancient olive trees that are feeding in into this and then he wrestles with God and in when he, the Lord says his father says to him this is your, the way right this is what you're going to do he pauses and it's in Gethsemane that he receives this care from the angels and he is ministered to and cared for in this place you see Gethsemane was a sacred place that was held for Jesus and by the disciples because they had been there with him so often they prayed together Sometimes it, he taught them in the garden. I guarantee you it was for naps. We know the disciples napped there um, that night that he prayed, but I'm sure that they took naps here. It was right outside the city. But I will tell you, it was always a place that they knew. They all knew that they could return to when they needed to hear from God. It's where they went to be fueled. Their Gethsemane. And, and I guess I never really thought about it until I was prepping for today. But have you ever... Have you ever wondered how in the world Judas knew where to find Jesus? He left halfway through dinner. Jesus didn't announce his plans earlier before dinner to say, after dinner, here's our game plan. How did he know where to go? Well, Jesus' best friend John tells us, actually, in chapter 18. It says, after saying these things, that's what's happening uh, in the upper room, this Passover Seder. Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with the disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas the betrayer knew the place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. Judas knew where Jesus would be, didn't he? Jesus' soul is crushed. His head uh, is, is like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I do? And Judas knows when Jesus is there, 
I know that he goes to Gethsemane. That's his place to meet with God. Judas knew because he had been there often. No one talks about the time in between when Judas sells out Jesus and then Judas gives Jesus this kiss of betrayal. What was it like on that path from the temple to the garden for him? Did he sit there and wonder in his mind and his soul and think, man, I remember, I know where he's going to be and in that garden we've prayed together. We were rejuvenated together over the last three years. Man, in that garden, I remember when we laughed together, when there was joy together, when we sang together. I remember the tears that we've had together, when we grieved together. There's so much in that garden. And Judas, in a garden that brought life and healing, is bringing death to that place. You see, after Jesus' death, burial, and his resurrection... Do you know what the final place where he meets his disciples is before he ascends into heaven? Can you guess? You're better than this. Come on. Can you guess? It's Gethsemane. He meets them on the Mount of Olives. In Acts chapter 1, we read, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half a mile. Gethsemane was their place that they knew they could go to meet God. I want to tell you that it is important for you and I, for you and I to know, where is it that we meet God? I'm so grateful for many of the conversations I've had with you leading up to this series, and I'll tell you, one of my favorites, I have them from our teenagers all the way up to us um, older folks. Um, and in my questions to some is, how do you connect with God, or how do you feel about Sunday mornings? Like, what do you, what, what, what ministers to you, or whatever, and there are some of you who, when we get into worship, you are on cloud nine when we begin to use music as a way of worshiping our Father and our Savior and the Holy Spirit, and you come alive. That's, this is me. And yet, there's some of you here that I've talked to and said, sometimes it's hard for me to sit in worship because I see people who are so expressive, and I feel like that's not where I'm at. I, I, I don't feel that way, so I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Sorry, you feel that way? You've done nothing wrong. That, that, that's, that's different. It's just not your wiring. It's okay. But some of you are like, man, when we're talking about the word of God and you start to go into the history of things and you get really deep and you start using words that are like Greeky and Hebrewy and Aramaic and you get, a, I just love that and I eat it up. And, and then someone sees you jotting down 100,000 notes during a message thinking, well, I got nothing. I'd rather just come on worship night than sit through this. You see, you're wired different. That's why we do what we do as a church. And, and when we come up to take communion, some are probably thinking, why do we do this every week? Because for some of us, the liturgy, the pattern of having and celebrating and pointing us back to Christ every week is necessary because we get off track. And we need that reminder. You see, we are all so different, and so we try to do what we can on a Sunday morning as best we can to help each other meet Jesus, but let's be real. Sunday morning is not going to cut it for any of us. So you have to know what size fits you. What size fits you? As we go through the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack what it means to be someone who walks in nature, someone who cares about people, someone who uses their senses, or, um, you know, 
there's a, a little uh, test that I had passed out to a couple of our elders and our staff to kind of say, hey, can you take this first and give me an idea of what you think about it? And so if you want to get a head start on where we're going and figure out right now or later today, what's my Gethsemane? Wh where's my Gethsemane? Where do I go to? There's a QR code that's coming up on the screen. Uh, I would encourage you, go ahead and scan it now. Like This is the perfect time. Pull out your phone. Total church permission right now. Ignore the, ignore the text. Okay, and if you are online, uh, this is right on our website right now, crossbridgecc.org, right on our front page. You go down, you're going to see a giant yellow uh, banner that's down there. So you could just click right on there. It'll take you to an assessment. In that assessment, you're going to answer uh, a bunch of questions that are five, like, things apiece. And if you're like, one to five, threes are fine, but try not to pick threes. That just kind of, you know, messes with things. Um, at the end, it's going to ask you for your email address. You could put this in if you want. I did not because I'm the type of guy that's like, I don't want emails from people I don't know. So I screenshot my answers. Uh, but I would encourage you to do this, and here's why. Over the next couple of weeks when we do this, I want you to know which of our uh, times of preaching that you want to lean into to understand. But also, I want you to know where you don't connect and the reason I tell you that is because when I retook this from where I was at 23, I've changed. And the very things that used to score so high for me are not as high. But the things that were so low, like my silence and solitude area, let me tell you, you'll hear a story about me being in the woods and it did not go well by myself. It, was, it did not go well. Um, Will and I were actually at a conference two weeks ago when my friend mentioned it, and I immediately went, <gasps> please don't tell that story. You'll hear that story. I didn't do well with that. It was really after you gave me the amazing gift of a sabbatical, and you loved me enough as a pastor to give me space to breathe and get to know myself better. Silence and solitude are one of the main ways that I connect with God right now. If I cannot find time away with him by myself, I, it's just hard for me to live life well. I was never that way. But if I ignored it, I'd never learn. And so we're going to learn together. We're going to grow together. We're going to change together. Amen? What I love about that is simply we close with communion because Jesus loves us where we are now. And we remember Jesus where we are in this moment. You are where you are right now. No one expects you to be any further along the road or is frustrated that you feel maybe that you're back here. At Crossbridge, we want you to be where you are, but we want you to take a step forward in your faith. And Jesus invites his disciples to do that when he says, you know, eat this bread and drink this cup. And when you do it, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember that this is my body that's been broken for you and my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And as we were in worship today, Isaiah 53 just kept coming. When we were singing that God was a healer then and he's a healer now, Isaiah 53 just kept, it was like the Holy Spirit was screaming and it's by his stripes that we're healed. It's by his stripes that we're healed. And some of us, you haven't heard nothing, but read more, pray more, read more, pray more, read more, pray more, and you're exhausted thinking you suck at being a Christian because you're just tired of doing it. And I want to tell you that Jesus Christ has died to take that shame away. And I want to invite you into learning something new about yourself because God has created you uniquely and he wants to show you who you are. But that may need some healing. And so as we take communion today, if you have chosen to follow Jesus here at Crossbridge, we invite you to come to the table to break and to dip and to, to take communion together.
If you have not chosen to follow Jesus, we would encourage you to stay where you are seated, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, we encourage that. But after, if you're feeling like, I've only believed one thing about myself, and I've got a one-size-fits-all spirituality. I need, I want healing from that. I want to invite you to come to our prayer area just as we have the last couple of weeks, and we just want to pray with you. We want to hear what you're wrestling with. Anoint you, pray that the Holy Spirit would bring healing to some of these areas. So would you stand with me as we prepare to take communion today? As we prepare to take communion, I would encourage you after prayer to come and to break, to dip, or to take the prepackaged cup and then bring it back to your seat and we will eat and drink together. Jesus, thank you for wiring us so different. We confess in this moment that there are probably areas where we have succumbed to racism or sexism or some other ism that has pushed people out. And in pushing people out, we have not loved like you've loved. And so you invite us back to the table where the disciples continue to fight with each other about who's the best. And you said the one who serves. And so I ask that you would allow us and shape us into people who serve well. And if there's areas of our heart that, Holy Spirit, you want to convict so that we can confess, we accept that. We welcome it. Would you bring illumination in this time as Jesus, we remember you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you come, break, and dip?